Hey, Whiskey Ringers, more updates coming your way. First off, the Jack Daniels barrels are totally sold out. These went in about a week, week and a half at most. If you haven't received your bottle stickers, please reach out to me with your address and how many you got, and I'll be happy to get those to you as soon as possible. Next up, our current single barrel, the Podcaster Yak Attack. A barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, is live and available on my site. You can go to stores.mashnetworks.co, that's .co, slash W-I-M-W-R. That's W-I-M-W-R for Whiskey in My Wedding Ring. Patrons get first access to this one too, and got free shipping alongside it. The next barrel pick that's scheduled is a toasted oat whiskey from Spirits of French Lick, which should be available in about February, and will also go through the same store. Also have a few picks rolling around right now that might pop up in the next few months. Best way to get first access, first knowledge of these things, special benefits, and codes for these bottles is to become a patron at www.patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. You can support for as little as a dollar a month with tiers at $5, $15, and $25. The $15 and $25 tiers also come with the opportunity to not only get samples from me, but the $25 tier lets you join me for barrel picks, whether they're in person or virtual. And with a lot of barrel picks hopefully coming down the line, this is the best time to sign up. There are just a few spots left at those top tiers, so if you're interested, don't miss out. Sign up now. Finally, I am thrilled to welcome Black Button Distilling out of Rochester, New York, as my newest sponsor. They've just opened a beautiful new facility, and I got to visit, tour around, and do an on-site episode that'll come out later this month. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for supporting. Sign up on Patreon and rate and review wherever you can. Hey, folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be returning to Sweden, and I'm joined by Henrik Molen of Spirit of Venn Distillery. Henrik, welcome on. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Absolutely. So this is a distillery you may have heard of uh, in the States, which honestly is, is somewhat new for um, anywhere in Scandinavia, distillers from there. Not a lot have a strong presence here in the U.S., but uh, besides having that presence, Spirit of Venn also has a the unique bottle design. Looks like an Erlenmeyer flask that you may have seen around, particularly with um, Tico Star and some of those products. So you may have seen this brand without necessarily knowing, and we're going to try to fix that today and dive a little deeper in there. So uh, so let's start at the beginning. So, uh, you know, it's, it's 2000. You're a chemist by training. Uh, and suddenly you have this idea for a distillery. Uh, so what kicked off the idea of, of joining the spirits world for you? Actually, it started in America, in California, of all places, of course, uh, following the, the the beer boom there uh, and visiting uh, what became Old Portrero uh, and what became St. George Distillery. And, and actually was visiting those, still loving the, the traditional Scottish type of whiskey, but uh, visiting Old Portrero and St. George, I kind of realized, oh, you can... You can still reinvent whiskey. You can still make something new uh, uh, and exciting. So um, back there, uh, actually, somewhere late, late 90s, I decided, oh, I want to make whiskey. Uh, then it, it took some years, obviously, coming back to, to Sweden. And me and my wife have a, a small hospitality industry. And we said, okay, let's start slow and, and dig into what we can do. 
then again, yeah, building a, a distillery, making whiskey, obviously you need to procure the, the right type of wood, uh, uh, maintaining your wood balance and everything. Uh, and making your recipe, making your sales, uh, and of course, get your finances in place. So it actually took until 2008 until we were on stream. But um, yeah. And that was one of my questions too, was going to be, you know, it, it it did take eight years between kind of ideation and creation. But I mean, that makes sense. You need to secure financing, make sure you can do what you, what you need to do. Um, now, in between those two periods, between 2000 and 2008, let's say, even a little earlier uh, at this time, as far as I know, you know, the Swedish and Scandinavian whiskey presence was not really there. I know Sweden in particular had a, a ban on production if it wasn't from the state uh, yeah. until later on. Uh, so that was about 2005 or so, right? Something like that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, since, since way back uh, it was forbidden obviously, and we still have a monopoly on sales. Uh, and the Monopoly actually had or started a whiskey distillery way back in the 60s, uh, making a very peated uh, whiskey, uh, blended whiskey with a lot of peat, which wasn't really in fashion back then. So uh, people never bought it and they uh, boxed that plan. Uh, and then there was a distillery starting up, uh, one of our colleagues in Sweden in early 2000s, uh, and then we were just the third distillery or whiskey distillery coming on stream in Sweden. So, uh, uh, it, it, and of course, way back then, even in America, I remember the first venue we had with ADI uh, mm-hmm. were back in 2002. And I think there were about a little shy of 40 distilleries in America. Uh, and today we, we see hundredfolds of that. So uh, it, we were early on. Absolutely. And the, the boom, I, I always think of the boom starting in America, at least in about maybe like 2005, 2007, something yeah. like that, and really kicking off in the 2010s, of course. Yeah. Uh, but so at, at that time with, with so few uh, local, if you will, so few local places to look at for what you wanted to create, um, in addition to what would become Old Potrero, St. George, where you had visited, uh, where else did you look for inspiration as to what you wanted to create in fr- as far as the I- distillery? I actually started out because, as I said way back then, there weren't a lot of distillers around, and especially not whiskey distillers, because obviously whiskey was either the the bourbon ish uh, or, or that type, or it was a Scottish malt whiskies, more or less, uh, or it was large, humongous uh, grain plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, but where we actually could see small distilleries, uh, that was in, in Switzerland, uh, southern parts of Germany, uh, around Bodensee. Uh, but most of those distilleries were not making whiskey. They were making uh, other potable uh, spirits like fruit brandies and whatever. Uh, and that's what we kind of s- saw with with uh, St. George as well. Uh, and obviously Old Portero, uh, all that still as well wasn't a, a traditional whiskey still, was it? So uh, it was making something new. Uh, because when we were coming online and making a small distillery, uh, not even Vendome were, were doing these small plants. They were just doing big stills, right? Uh, minimum uh, 1 million liters pure alcohol per year. Uh, so everything needed to be 
reinvented or, or scaled down everything from heat exchangers to pumps to mash tons, everything. Uh, and a lot of what we brought in, obviously, and, and same with our colleagues that started at the same times, so obviously, that was uh, more or less changing breweries, small breweries, craft breweries into distilleries. Uh, so we, we needed to invent ourselves more or less with, with the accolade or whatever we could find from the big stills. And today, do you find people now coming to you to look at, okay, they have this set up, maybe we want to adapt it to our own distilleries? We do still, yes. Uh, but again, now there are so many distillers around the world, obviously, uh, in, in our size or even bigger or smaller. Uh, so there's a lot to look at, but obviously we've been on on track for a while. So we do have quite a lot of visitors, both on on the consumer side, but also uh, within trade and whoever want to start out. And, uh, and as you you might know, we also have a consultancy side. So we we do help quite a lot of distillers, everything from startups to the the big mom and dad companies uh, that needs to uh, do something new. So uh, we still have quite a lot of both clients and consumers come and visit us. Fantastic. And the, before you were even, uh, before you had the distillery, this could have been before you even had the idea, but you know, you were figuring it out. What did you drink? Oh, uh, <laughs> actually one of the, whiskies that brought me into to whiskey and, and especially single malts were, were Glamorangia. I thought they were doing something new and they, they were thinking uh, somewhat outside the box at the time, uh, letting out varieties of Glamorangia. This was mid-90s something. Uh, obviously, there were others. Uh, then Lafroy came in, uh, or in my point of view, obviously it's been done since the, the 1800s, but, uh, and so those were the two first that I realized, oh, single malt, we could really do something. Uh, with that said, obviously single malts, uh, my, my interpretation <laughs> might be disagreement around that, but single malts originally were as a flavoring that was an agent and cordial for for grain whiskey to to make flavors so drinking single malts by itself if you go back to the 70s they they were extremely potent uh so what we've driven single malts into today is is a, a softer more gentle variety of what we had uh way back uh because now we drink more single malts obviously uh, as is and uh, that's something I wanted to venture into our, our blended whiskey, which we probably will talk about later on as well. I mean, I, I've been fortunate to taste some, not a ton, but some of the, uh, you know, single malts from 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, I mean, I, Highland Park tends to be my favorite Scottish okay. distillery, and some okay. of the stuff from there is incredible. But uh, as, you, as you alluded to, the style has changed over the years, not just with the ingredients going in the grain has changed and there's the wood has changed there's a lot of things that have changed but yep. i agree there's something about the older single malts it's so much more flavorful and and potent i, I think it's a great word to describe it yep. um and of the ones you mentioned i mean you're talking about glenmorangie lafroig i mean these are very opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of flavor profiles yep. but 
also iconic in terms of what a single malt could be. Yeah. So you were really looking at the full spectrum. Yeah, and I, I said I, I I think obviously we go back to to the eighties when we uh, were sniffing around my father's cabinet or, or uh, taking whatever was in there. Obviously, those were the the old Shivas, the Valentines, and all those. Uh, so came into those. Those were quite rough at the time because they were obviously young and there were uh, older casks and whatever. Uh, but then came into the lighter versions, which were obviously Glamorandi with more uh, wood wood impact. Uh, but then ventured into the, or I did, uh, ventured into the smoky peat, uh, Lafroy, but also obviously we had Portel and uh, all of those art bags, Lagavulin. Uh, but then when you've made that your, your heart and you realize how wonderful it is, you could also... Uh, realize and and go back to the lighter ones. So so from that I I went ballistic the other way around and went into the the Rosebank Saint Magdalen. Uh, I did quite a lot of work with Bladnock back in the, in the times as well. Uh, so some of those single malts were just amazing. And unfortunately, some of those products, yes, some of them we can make again, but some of those were also. Uh, there were lower yield from from the fields, getting more minerals, more character into the grain. Uh, unfortunately, we did have, uh, to an extent, better wood back in in the sixties, seventies, and eighties uh, than we do today, uh, and more air dried, more uh, other versions of uh, wood. Uh, the smoky whiskies uh, would haven't done those type of smoky whiskies as they did back until the uh say early uh, early 80s late 70s uh and i don't think you were would even be allowed to do the, those whiskies today because they have so much fur for all so you would get cancer just by sniffing at them but uh yeah it's true we usually uh haven't talked about fur for all on the podcast we've talked about ethyl carbamide as another uh yeah. one that's I mean, it's identified as a carcinogen, but you know, at, at we're talking about concentrations that are far beyond what is normal. You'd have to drink bottles and bottles every day to kind of get there. But once it's yeah. once it's labeled that, it's hard to get past that. Um, yeah, and 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 carbamates, we we do have challenges, and, and go back to the sixties and seventies, there were challenges with carbamates. Uh, we don't have much methyl carbamate here because we don't have a lot of methanol. If you do malt whiskies, you don't create a lot, a lot of methanol, so you don't create a lot of methyl carbonate. You do create ethyl carbamate, which again might be obviously it's dangerous, but it's in normally it's very low levels uh, if you don't do anything very strange during fermentation. Uh, but furfurols, again, yes, furfurols is also uh, cancerogenic uh, at levels. Uh, but again, uh, we did the, one of those measurements uh, a couple of years ago, and we compared uh, having a, a smoky, furfural rich whiskey and compare that to having a, a, a croque monsieur or, or a toast. When you toast your bread, you get a lot more furfurals out of that toasted bread. Uh, so, yeah. And that goes to uh, to another part of your background, which is you are a chemist by training. Yes. So. How did you go from the chemistry training to whiskey or to spirits in general? Na naively, 
<laughs> I that when we started out, obviously we we did have our hotel and the distillery was meant to be. Uh, we said okay, we had a, a, a seasonal uh, hospitality industry where we had a lot of. Uh, visits and guests from from me till september and i very naively told my wife say hey, okay let's build a small distillery here we can distill during winter we sell it during summer <laughs> yeah right uh <laughs> but that was the the original plan uh so uh, and obviously with whiskey you need to mature it uh, in america you can sell it a bit younger in europe we need to to mature it for a minimum of three years uh and obviously to sell it usually needs to be about five years if anybody wants to drink it it should be eight to ten years old uh so obviously it's a long time between investment uh, and getting your your money back uh so uh, what i thought was okay because we were early on so getting your your economy on site and, and the finances in place uh you could obviously be one of those emission distillers bringing uh, stock equity or uh, uh, other partners in, or you could try to persuade your bank to, to lend you money, or you need to find finances from something else. So I said, okay, let's become a small uh, pilot plant for the big guys. Uh, so I designed our distillery to be a pilot plant and we could do experiments for others, which we, we still do. Um, but also, obviously, we realized uh, if we want to have money and building the brand before we have the whiskey, we need to do something else. So we were quite early on doing gins and vodkas and aquavits. Uh, and to be to be really honest, with whiskey, if you have uh, if if you're thorough when distilling, fermenting, and if you use good raw materials, uh, normally you get a fairly good product. Uh, but with making gins and aquavit uh, and vodkas, you need to do a lot of uh, laboratory analysis to make sure you get consistency, you get your right yield, and that you're up to code in whatever country you're going to sell it. So I said, okay, uh, again, persuading my my dear and understanding wife, saying, hey, we, we need to build a laboratory here. Uh, so and she said, obviously, building a laboratory is much more expensive than building a distillery. So she said, okay, if you're going to build a, a laboratory here, you need to get clients in to to finance the, those GCs and whatever. So uh, and I realized if if we want to check our products, uh, obviously our colleagues would like to do the same. So uh, we started our laboratory uh, back in 2009 as well, uh, and today we have clients all over the world. So, uh, and that also gave us the possibility of trying to really get consistency into our products, get better yield, uh, and uh, obviously get the exact profile we want. Uh, and our guesses tend to be uh, more accurate than uh, if you don't use laboratory. Uh, obviously, uh, a GC could never replace a good nose or a good palate, but uh, it's it's a very good tool to have. So, absolutely, I uh, have a project that um, I'll talk to you a bit offline about, but because I know listeners have heard about it before, but it's about measuring rye content or relative yep. rye content in the whiskeys, yep. uh, just because of different countries have different regulations, and um, I'm I'm curious about a couple of uh, brands that 
say they're hundred percent rye, if you mm-hmm. make it in Canada, that could be any cereal grain. You know, we yep. think of it has to have rye, the grain, but I'll talk, I'll talk to you offline about that. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I think there's ideas worth there, but go, just jumping into the lab though, with the GC and, and that's grass chromatography for uh, listeners. When you are do you run the uh, whiskeys through that as well? Oh yeah, so uh, and we've done that since day one, or, or at least uh, the more equipment we get into the lab, the more uh, we tend to test. Uh, but there, there are simple stuff uh, that any distiller could do. Just checking your your pH or uh, redox uh, in a barrel will show you a good tool of your maturation how it progresses. Uh, but also, if you go into uh, you do some wet chemistry, ma- measuring your your acid that will give you a tool of maturation. Uh, but obviously, GCs, uh, HPLC, or, or similar liquid chromatography, uh, that's what we tend to use for for mashing and, and fermentation to make sure we get the right sugars and the, all the sugars out. Um, and obviously, uh, gas chromatography to make sure we get the the right character. But also. Obviously, to, to checking our maturation, if we want to make a product that are to be consistent over the years, we need to, when we bring in new casks, making new batch, we need to make sure, okay, do we have, we will always have fluctuations, obviously, but uh, we could come as close as possible. Uh, and that would also give us more knowledge uh, in our, our book to make sure we get better yields. So... Uh, uh, a good laboratory analysis also makes you money. Uh, end of the day, right? Sure. And when you run a product through there, and let's say there's a, I'm just throwing out a number, a 10% deviation from what from the numbers that you're expecting or that you're aiming for, um, how do you correct? Uh, more or less, what we do, and I think most of our colleagues do uh, as well, that do similar uh, methods. Obviously, you take uh, Test from your barrels, a uh, little depending on what you do. You, if you are to, like the the big mom and dad companies, again, if you empty 1,000 barrels, obviously you do uh, one here and there. You can't test all the barrels. Uh, we are so small, so we take uh, samples from every barrel, uh, and we run them through a GC, and we get samples out, and we can say, okay, I take this and this and this, and that barrel will sit another year or whatever. Uh, then. Uh, as with uh, any batch we would do of anything, we, we do have a plus and minus. So we said, okay, if we this is going to be a, a zero, that's where we allow it to be perfect or whatever you want to call it. If it's plus two, that then it's okay. We, we release it. If it's plus three, uh, it goes to, to me for, for judgment. If it's four, uh, it uh, goes back to warehouse. Uh, same minus two minus, uh, and whatever. So you have... Uh, an agreed deviation that you you accept, but uh, you might also have stuff that. And then again, it doesn't need to be bad. Whatever you you say, okay, this can't go into my blend, uh, but it might be an amazing whiskey. But it should be a single cask or going into a a, a, a one-off uh, mix with other barrels. So 
Uh, and most oftenly, if you, you have too much wood extract from a barrel, for example, you could uh, blend that in with a barrel that have been to a more exhaust, exhausted wood or you, you mix them together. Because again, with, with barrels and casks, most of them we use, yeah, I, I tend to say three times, first time uh, within virgin barrel, uh, you tend to extract a little bit too much. Uh, second time, it's normally quite good. Uh, and the third time, uh, a little too little of the extract. So if you mix those three together, you get uh, a fairly good blend. Uh, with malt whiskey, again, because malt whiskey during maturation is is vastly different from maturing rye and, and corn. And uh, we'll get into some of the products a little bit later, but you've got... Uh, I've been able to try the Old Hair, which is a um, blended whiskey from you, the Mercurius, which is the yep. corn whiskey, and uh, the Venice, which is the rye. Um, all excellent products. I think at some point I have tasted Tico Star as well. I could not find my notes for it, so I apologize for that. But um, I did, getting to taste the other products was uh, just a wonderful experience to build out as you're describing these flavors in the way that you're getting to them seeing it in process and in progress. Yeah. So just before jumping into the uh, your process for creating these products, your own family history goes back quite a while in this, on the island of Venice, five generations, I think. And yeah. this isn't an island where, last I checked, there are only about 350, 375 inhabitants. It's not a yeah. metropolitan area, let's say. Not, no. um, so, uh, you know, how is that longevity of, of a family in one place impacted how you think about spirit production? Uh, one part, we, we do have quite a lot of banjo players on, on the island. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, some people hasn't climbed down from the, from the trees yet. But um, uh, again, yes, if, if you are from a, a, a small place or a small community, obviously you do want to use your, your local produce, whatever you get from your local farmer or whatever. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's it's better, but it does give you a, a provenance and it gives you uh, a special character. Because again, with we see even on our small island, uh, our island is about seven point two square kilometers. I tend to say it takes about four beers to walk around the island. Uh, and as as you know, obviously, whiskey is not in short of distilled beers, or, or whiskey is what beer want to be when it grows up. Uh, so it takes about two bottles of whiskey to walk around. But uh, with this small island, if we look on the north side of the island, uh, where we have more sand in the soil, uh, we do create different minerals for our gar grain than we do on the on the south side, where we have more more clay. So all those minerals from field to field with different grains, we do have different characters. So obviously, if we would take it from the mainland, we get something different. Uh, with our malt whiskey and some of our, our, our wheat, for example, we need to take it from uh, because we can't get everything from the island. But uh, it, it, it's, uh, it gives you a, a warmer heart to bring something directly in. And you could always go out and kick on the, on the tractor if the farmer do something strange or whatever. So. And as I said, this is, uh, you know, it's only 7.2 square kilometers, but there's an incredible, not only incredible microclimate, but an incredible variance in terms of what you can grow there. I mean, you're growing uh, 
just to name the major ones, you know, corn, wheat, barley, rye, durum, and oats all in one island. Yeah. Where, you know, normally we think of I mean, rye kind of can grow almost anywhere I found. That one is maybe yeah. a, by its own yeah. thing. But when you get to corn, wheat, barley, these are ones that need certain climates, uh, a little more specific than rye, need certain soils. And yet within the small space, everything has a place there. And even yeah. even accounting for, as you said, having to bring some grain from the mainland just to to meet your production levels, that must be just incredible to look around during the four beer walk around to yep. see all these different grains being able to grow. So what what is that microclimate like? Uh, the, the farmers say it's a, it's a plus 10 soil, so it's the best soil you can get. But uh, I, th I think with small islands, you tend to get a very, uh, uh, very good microclimate because we can stand on our island. We, we have about 10 kilometers to Denmark and 10 kilometers to, to Sweden. So this is a small strait between Sweden and Denmark. Uh, and we can stand on our island with clear skies and we can see it rains in Sweden and rains in Denmark. Uh, because obviously we have the, the hot air from the soil uh, growing up. So we, the clouds, if it's not those enormous storms, obviously, but if it's small, low pressures, they actually walk around or flow around the island. Uh, but on the same time, obviously we, being small, we do get very humid climate. So it's very good for whatever crop we want to grow. Uh, and we still have the air, so we don't get uh, any fungus or whatever, because th there's always a small breeze coming out. Uh, and again, that gives us more. Uh, if we compare to the mainland on the Swedish and the Danish side, we have about 10% more sun hours uh, just being on the other. So uh, I think that's uh, beneficial for us. But um, yeah. And do you know, uh, uh, this probably question I should have sent off beforehand, but do you know offhand if there are specific like strains of rye or barley that you're growing on the island, or are they more kind of a general? Yeah, we we do have, uh, or we have tried over the years uh, a lot of different varieties, and and we do that continuously. Uh, so every year we we try to bring in at least two new varieties of of rye or or barley or uh, or um, uh, corn just to make sure if we could create something new, new flavors. Uh, wheat, we are, are quite satisfied with what we have, and wheat is more of a bulk spirit material for us. Uh, it does have potential to be others. Uh, our oats, uh, we are so happy with, so we don't dare to change anything, to be honest. Uh, same oats that actually go into to Oatly as well. Uh, as you might know, uh, the original Oatly factory is just a, a couple of kilometers from us on the, on the mainland uh from the island uh but uh with barley different fields and different uh, varieties we we do get different character out uh same with the rye uh so uh we do try different varieties uh one part is obviously yield but being a small distillery uh we're not so focused on yield much more on on creating the character we we want so um yeah and if necessary, if, let's say that something went either not necessarily wrong with the, the rye or the barley crop, but something that accentuated one flavor in a year that you weren't quite expecting, you can, if needed, bring in grain from the mainland to 
balance that out a little bit to get the yeah. character you're looking for. Yes, we, we did have that about three years ago and one of our, our grain we brought in. Uh, not so much due to the variety of, of rye. It was actually just uh, over the year we did have uh, a bad uh, microclimate and uh, there was a lot of rain in the wrong time of year. So uh, we got uh, off flavors from that. Uh, so that actually went into being purely distilled in stout and went into rye vodka, but uh, we can use it for, for our whiskey. So, and then we needed to take it from the mainland. So it, it does happen from time to time, of course. Sure. But it's nice to have at least that flexibility that you have the local terroir, the local microclimate on the Island, and then the ability to supplement as necessary. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes you don't have to, but yeah. the flexibility must be. Uh, wonderful to use. Yep. So shifting into uh, the production phase of this, so you've got the grains, uh, all, as we've said, you know, as local as possible, whenever possible. Uh, do you do all your milling and mashing on site? Yes, everything. Uh, we actually even have a small maltings. Uh, my, my dream is still to have capacity to malt all our, our grain. Uh, unfortunately, we can't uh, yet uh, for for all our barley, uh, but uh, we do have capacity to malt about a ton per per week. So uh, we do malt some, and we do that with the extremely peated ones or the flavored ones. We uh, we do have some whiskeys where we uh, we uh, smoke and peat with uh, with junipers, for example, or some of the botanical materials we use for for. Uh, some of our activate or our gins, so we use them in with the with the drying process of the barley, so giving a very special character. So, um, yes, uh, we do some all things, but not all, uh, and every all because again, that is something we need to adjust every time, depending on uh, the humidity level and obviously size of the grain. Uh, it has to do with the variety. Obviously, it's vastly different to 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 uh, make grist out of of oats or from from wheat. So, so uh, we do have uh, actually we have three three different mills for different uh, produce. But yeah, and then obviously yeah, going into the process there, uh, we do have with uh, with the malt whiskey that's traditional uh, semi lautering. So we do uh, ferment, uh, and not a fully clear word. Uh, I know that uh, when when we nerds come together, we always talk about should you you ferment a clear word or not. Uh, and some say, okay, the the clearer the word, the uh, the pure, the more floral, the uh, the character of the malt or malt whiskey. Uh, but again, I I like to have a little bit of. of uh, cloud in there to to actually give us more car character, give caramelization, and yes, some fur falls during uh, distillation. So, so a little bit of that. Uh, whilst with um, uh, with our grain side, where we do our corn whiskey and our rye whiskey, for example, uh, that's mash cooking. Uh, and uh, when we started out with this. Uh, I, I did try all different or a lot of different varieties. <laughs> I should never say all, but a lot of different varieties. And I decided to get, or my my feeling was when 
when we did ferment uh, all grains in, we got so much more character out and did the first distillation with the full porridge. Uh, so um, uh, that's quite different from how we do our malt whiskies to how we do our, our grain whiskies. With the, I mean, that makes a lot of sense for me that the corn in particular, I've always found distill it needs, it needs some extra oomph to it. So doing it on grain tends to yield a better result than uh, off grain distillation yeah. uh, for the semi-laudering. So the somewhat cloudy port that you're getting uh, a question I'm trying to ask here. Uh, have you found the right uh, consistent, I don't know, I guess percentage or ratio of, you know, on grain that you'd like for the, for the barley, let's say. For the barley, we, we do, uh, since it's a similar watering, uh, we do filter it over the bed, uh, but we do accept a little bit of, it's more or less some flour coming over uh, uh, during fermentation. Uh, but it, it's not it's not clear, but it's not it's a little bit cloudy, and we do actually measure it. Uh, we do have a, a comparison sheet, but we also go in and and check the turbidity. So we have a turbidity level where where we want to be because we don't want too much either, because then again we get a bit too much on the furfrals, and there are risks of creating other stuff, and and you could also get. Uh, uh, or what uh, Marius at Laleman tend to say, uh, you, you get unhappy yeast, uh, and the yeast need to be happy to create the best flavors and the uh, uh, the alcohols and the acids and the esters and the aldehydes we want. So a little bit in there to to get energized and uh, and kind of like the 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 funny guys at the party going in there and, and uh, messing around with the yeast, but but not too much whilst. With our our rye and our corn whiskey, uh, we ferment the full porridge, uh, and uh, in that case, we we do uh, have about twenty twenty five percent dry content. So, and more dry content once it gets to the still, you also run the risk of a little more things can start burning a little more easily and and settling, and that's just a mess to clean up as well. So, yeah, you yeah, and you need that. to yeah. Yeah, and also it creates challenge with pumping and whatever. So, uh, and obviously from that, because we still do that batch wise, we we are in process now where we're actually designing a continue a smaller continuous uh, 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 grain uh, coffee still as well. Uh, so we'll see how that progresses, but. Uh, again, that needs to be pumped away and heat exchanger or whatever. So, uh, and the more the more dry content we have in there, the the more challenge we we do have. Sure. So. And the I have definitely some questions about the coffee still because that yeah. fascinates me. Uh, but just on the fermentation side, you know, you have an unusually long fermentation. It's, you go for a full seven days. Standards usually like somewhere between two, three, five days. At, at most um with that as two questions first on the actual uh, technical side are you uh repitching yeast at a certain point or do you allow malolactic fermentation to take over 
Yes, we, we get a, a natural malolactic. Uh, occasionally with certain recipes, we, we actually infuse it. Uh, but it normally goes over to malolactic after about 120 hours anyway, uh, because we do infuse it. And if it doesn't, we, we push it a bit. Uh, and the, the, the reason for the long fermentation is obviously we're a small distillery. We need to date, make flavorsome spirits and a lot of character in there. Uh, the reason a lot of the big guys don't do it is obviously it's, it's size of your plant and getting there. And you do have risk of creating uh, unwanted substances as well, because you do have 90% at least of your alcohol you have after 50 to 55 hours. So everything that happens after that is not so much about yield. It's more about creating character. Uh, and after say 150 hours you're you're actually eating of your yield uh because all of a sudden some of those alcohols you have in there they actually start creating esters and aldehydes instead uh which again is our what we want to create right but uh, still we're, we're taking some of our yield now that's a very very small percentage but still so right i mean but uh, yeah yeah i was just it it's it is a small percentage, but it's still when you're dealing when you're starting out at you know seven eight percent alcohol uh, off thing. That's it's different from if you're at the period where you're at one hundred and six percent alcohol and you can sacrifice five percent. You really need as much of that alcohol as you can get starting off. But as I said, towards the end of the fermentation, at least in the the first yeast fermentation, you're getting a lot more of those fruity flavors towards the end. Uh, so I, I tend to think it, as a general rule that longer fermentations yield fruitier spirits. So, but that's again, going to maybe, you know, four or five days. So about a hundred hours, 120 hours for those last two. Um, is that a, a different, uh, do you have one strain of yeast or two strains that you. It, it's a little depending on, uh, with our, our corn and rye whiskey, we actually just pitch one type of yeast. Uh, but with the malt whiskey, uh, we, we do have three different recipes. One of them, we just use one, uh, recipe, but the others, we actually, after about, or the second day, normally it's that that's after about 24 to 26 hours, we do pitch a second yeast and the second yeast is more to create esters and aldehydes. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I tend to like uh, a lot of floral notes. I like the phenyl ethyl alcohol with the rose buds and all that, uh, but also uh, the the almond character, the nutty characters, some of those higher chains, uh, alcohols and esters and aldehydes. And that's what we create after longer fermentation, right? So uh, one of my normal go-to is the champagne yeast and bayonis yeast, where you create more of that. Uh, isoamyls, the, the the banana characters, some of those uh, leathery characters, uh, so which do again create a lot of character. But again, uh, as you were uh, sniffing around as well, uh, obviously, uh, what percentage of alcohol you aim for is also affecting what and how much of the esters and allies and acids you create. Uh, because obviously, if you you have uh, uh, a very high uh, alcohol level with a malt whiskey, for example, if you go up to ten or eleven percent alcohol in your wash, or as your your final uh, OG, uh, 
then all of a sudden you don't create a lot of character because again they the yeast doesn't like that too much so so they tend to go in just in production mode and just make alcohol not so much flavors uh so with our malt whiskey i tend to say to to our production that uh, we tend to stay around 992 that's our our maximum uh, with certain recipes, with smoky recipes, for example, we actually go down to eight and a half, eight point seven percent alcohol. Uh, whilst when we do our our rye whiskey, we uh, tend to have maximum seven point two. Normally, we're around seven. Uh, and with the corn, uh, we actually keep down to six point eight. So, so, so again, a bit lower uh, final ABV in our wash to create the character we want because if you go too high especially on rye um we've done trials where we went up to nine or eight nine percent alcohol and all of a sudden you create a, a very bitter off note and you tend to create uh almost like a soapy character so again uh, how you how you make all those small uh, balances all the way through affect your final character right this month's impact spotlight is on nickneen Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation, and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks, that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nicknean's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts, not commonly found, in whiskey distilling, all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nicknean, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nicknean Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S. For more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskering Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking there's someone uh, that I want to introduce you to on the American side who you would have just a fantastic time talking to. Um, he's nerdy, but like I am, but has just so much more knowledge when it comes to these um, chemicals. So I think, so I'll make the introduction afterwards. Yep. Um, so the, before we get into the full stills, I'm going to take a slight detour to go over to, as you mentioned before, that coffee still that you guys have. So 
this, when I first read about it, I heard about that you had it just, it was incredible to me that it's the first wooden coffee still built in a hundred years. There are only about three of these wooden coffee stills in the world. Um, if I remember, I think one of them might be in Japan. Uh, and it's, I mean, this is from Aeneas Coffee. This is 1834. I believe he got the patent for it. 33, 34. And it's one of the first con continuous style stills. So, but it's it's over the years it has been replaced effectively by by more efficient methods or different styles, but it still holds value. So I I was curious what inspired you to recreate this to build it. Yeah, I said uh, Anas Coffee said to to uh, made this or designed this back in 1831. Got a patent for it as he said 1834, I think it was, uh, and that became what's Cameron Bridge Distillery today. Uh, I got hold of uh, the original drawings for uh, his first still. Uh, uh, that was about 15 years ago. And I said, I need to build one of these. <laughs> uh, and it took me a, a number of years because before I could persuade uh, a Scottish company to help me make this. And uh, obviously, you need to have that uh, compliant as well to make the authorities actually allowing us to use this uh, type, which obviously... We couldn't use it or do it exactly as the drawings were because now we needed to, needed to have some stainless in there. We need to have measurements, uh, pressure, uh, relief valves and all. Uh, but uh, we got that manufactured at least, uh, uh, was now about 12 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and it is amazing. Uh, and especially the, the first batches we, we run through this still, when the wood was all new uh, and we had this character because obviously the trial distillation we did first we just brought in uh, a diluted vodka in there just to make sure everything was tight and whatever so uh, and getting this vodka out with that wooden character was amazing uh, obviously the the wood impact on the spirit uh, is less and less over over the years but it still gives a character uh, and uh, it is unique and still extremely efficient uh, with a footprint of, uh, I think I think we're about uh, 10 square meters, uh, and it still makes uh, more or less two barrels per hour, so extremely efficient. So, um, uh, and it's a fun still, uh, and it, you kind of feel like Professor Baltasar or one of those crazy professors. So, uh, and yeah, and now we're going into uh, further development, what we learned with this still. So obviously this will keep in production, but uh, we'll make, as I said, uh, another one with where we do, where we'll actually bring our porridge, our wash fermented grains in there as well uh so uh, that will be our our next step now so and i mean that you actually addressed both questions that i had for it, which were non you know do you use it in production but also did you have to change anything merely for safety concerns and modern regulations and such and i, I haven't seen the original drawings but it makes sense more release yeah. valves a little stronger yeah. um source to it but i guess the, jumping back to the to the question diving a little bit deeper is just why why did you want to re rebuild this still, if you will, or, or build it again? Um, if you already had stills that were working, you already had a process, what 
did you kind of think that the coffee still was going to bring something additional before you had even tried it? Yeah, and, and efficient, it, it's so much more efficient, right? Because what we did originally, our, our first stills, uh, we do have 18 stills in production right now, everything from small 20 and 100 liter stills up to uh, our, our biggest, now it's 5,000 liters, our biggest still, uh, and then our, our continuous still. So we do have a lot of stills, but we started out with single malts, and that was a double pot still, and a, a small pot still with that. And then we added on column stills and whatever. Uh, but all of those were batch distillation. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, with continuous distillation, you get much more efficient. So it was one part was yield and efficiency. Uh, but when we realized also that we actually got uh, an, a, a quality uh, advantage with this still, uh, it gave us even more, right? So, uh, because with the traditional, with the pot still, you you have or batch wise pot still, uh, you you have benefit to to one extent that you could actually uh, take your cuts and you could divide your cuts. Uh, one of the early thing we did with our our single malt whiskey was that we just didn't do like all the other Scottish distillers with, okay, we take away the heads and we take away the tails and we keep the, the hearts. Uh, we started to divide up uh, the hearts cut. So we had seven different tanks for dividing up our, our heart. So middle heart, that was something that went into to our, our blended side. Uh, and then we took parts of uh, the, the heads or the early hearts and the late hearts and bring them together to make more palatable flavors of malt whiskeys. Uh, but with the continuous pro- process, you could actually, with your rectifier, all of a sudden you could decide, okay, again, this spirit coming out here, uh, that's something that going into that process flow for for maybe for blended whiskey, uh, and this goes into uh, blended malt whiskey, or this goes into that type of, of spirit or different character, different barrels. Uh, and you can do that continuous. So uh, it gives you more process control. So there, there are pros and cons with everything. I don't say better or worse. You uh, give you a possibility of doing other stuff. Bern, you know, there are uh, pictures of the still online. It's, uh, again, I, I think I'd seen the one in Japan. And now that I'm thinking about it, it they may have one that's a wooden still, but I think it's still more uh, modern than the original designs would have would have been Um, and looking at yours there are pictures online of it of on your website and it's um you can see the elements you can see not only the you know the levels the the plates or where where we would think of a plate in a column still uh and you can see the evolution and for me that's really fun to just see this is where it started of course we've come to a different place today in terms of what it would look like functionally but the function of is still relatively the same it's maybe more efficient today as you said for sure actually not maybe more efficient it's definitely more efficient today um (laughs) in modern column stills but there was a process and there was part of that process so um jim back you also said so you've got 18 stills which is i'm pretty sure more than any other distillery that i've spoken to (laughs) (laughs) um certainly when you're talking about they're not all the same of the variety of 18 stills. Um, I don't know, maybe I think Strawning actually was installing 24 stills, when, <laughs> but they were all mainly the same. So you've had 18 stills there. 
uh, why so many? <laughs> my, my wife tend to say I bore easily, which I don't think is fair because we've been married for 25 years. Uh, but but uh, I, I do like to do different recipes. And a lot of our work with the consultancy side and laboratory side is to helping our, our, our colleagues uh, as well as ourselves with making new recipes. Uh, and obviously you can make any type of spirit part, part from my maybe vodka where you need to distill to 95 and 96% alcohol uh, where you need to have columns, but otherwise you can make more or less any type of spirit in any type of spill. And that will uh, affect your character again, not better or worse, but different. Uh, but, there are also traditions of looking into when we do our rums, for example. Uh, obviously, you need to have a retort still. Now, everybody should have a retort still. Uh, it's fun. Uh, but uh, again, sometimes we need botanical baskets. Sometimes we need uh, columns. And, and obviously, with, with vodka, we need to distill to 96. Uh, and everybody should have a coffee still, right? It's just like human nature. It's... It, in all fairness, everybody should have a coffee still. Uh, but uh, all these different stills, they, they do give something different to to their product. And for me, it was, uh, again, yeah, we test new recipes. We do test uh, different varieties. And then we could have that still to making that product. Uh, because, again, I, I tend to compare that if you buy one of these lawnmowers that could also uh, blow uh, your leaves and could also do your your borders or uh, whatever you would do, and you have a combi machine, all of a sudden it, it can do everything, but it uh, excels in nothing. Uh, but if you could uh, make one product and, and one still just doing that one process uh, and excel in that, area and then you have another area where you can do something else so uh and i like stills <laughs> right. again this guy builds that i want to introduce you to builds his own stills as well so you'll, you will get along fabulously <laughs> uh, so for the for the whiskey and gin for for spirit of events so for your own products um if i read correctly there are three stills of those 18 that you use for the whiskey and the gin i'm I'm lumping those together. Uh, so for those three stills, what does the setup look like? For, for the gins, we, um, most, most of our gin go through our, our 3000 liter column stills. And we do have different setups depending on, uh, but we also have gins where we just have a pot still, uh, distilling over, uh, and we actually have one. Uh, continuous gin still as well. So we have a botanical basket. We just shift over one from the other. Uh, but uh, most of our, our gin and our original gin, when we started out uh, back in 2009, or the first gin we released, we did that in our single malt whiskey distillery. So it was in a pot still. Uh, and uh, the way most of the traditional uh, gins were made in, in the UK. Uh, but then when we increased production of our malt side, obviously we needed still for malts uh, and we uh, moved the distillation over to another still. And we still have some of those or where we do just a pot still, uh, but also column. Because what I like with the column and botanical baskets is that all of a sudden, again, 
if you want to extract the maximum, and we do have the benefit of laboratories going and analyzing every part of the process. So obviously uh, you get something out when making a gin. If you push all the botanical baskets in, in the boil, uh, you do create a, a stew or whatever you want to call it. You create one type of character. Uh, if you have a botanical basket where just the vapor goes through, uh, you do create a different character again. Uh, so again, not better or worse, you do create different uh, character. Uh, but if you also within this uh, have columns, so with the columns, uh, all of a sudden you can decide when you distill over, because obviously on columns, you tend to have D flags, or at least we have. So right. uh, with the D flags, uh, we control, okay, after uh, the uh, first column, in this case, uh, with our 3000 liters still, because we have two columns there. So mm -hmm. we can decide, okay, I bring this up to say, uh, whatever, 80, 86% alcohol or whatever. So it's a one, uh, set percentage of alcohol and that set percentage of alcohol also gives us uh, an exact temperature which we do hit with a vapor on the botanical material uh, giving us an extract point from the botanicals uh, so again and then goes through the the second uh, uh, column and then deflag again, so we could take out the stuff that we don't want that we brought out from the first botanical basket, and we could bring in other botanical material after in the second botanical basket, again with the controlled temperature of the vapor. So it's a way of, we tend to talk about when we do gins about fixatives, or we have ingredients in a, a gin recipe, for example, or this is obviously the same if you do a flavored vodka or uh, an acrylate, but certain compounds like orris root or uh, angelica root or whatever, that might cling on to or create a polarity or something within your, your, uh, your distillation. So you change the vapor pressure point of something else, it clings on to uh, and, and you get your, your profile over. So all of these uh, capacities or whatever you have, your columns, your botanical baskets, your D flags, that control. So you get consistency, you get better yield all of a sudden, uh, and you, you get out what you want. So you control your process uh, and, and that helps our yield. So uh, I still get uh, a bit, I would say, frustrated and disappointed with a lot of distillers we come into making sometimes wonderful for gins or flavored uh, spirits, uh, but they don't control the process. They don't uh, do their analysis. So uh, they have yields down to uh, the 70s when doing a gin, 70% uh, yield of whatever uh, alcohol you bring in there instead of, and I tend to say everything below 90 and, and it's really bad. Uh, we tend to be up to 92, 94% efficiency. Uh, if you control and, and all of a sudden you you actually create uh, money for yourself as well, apart from consistency. Sure. I mean, it's, it's it, as you have said a couple of times, it comes down to scale as well. I mean, if you're the giant distilleries, that's it's a rounding error, some of these yeah. yields. But if you're doing a couple of casks per week or, or something similar to that, if you're getting 20, 25% less than you could be getting, 
then I would look at that as a cost benefit analysis of, do I spend the money to do the analysis to make these yields higher or do I continue at the level I am not spend the money on that, but also not make as much in the process and lose product that it could be selling. So it's, I mean, that's, and that's not a, an insignificant difference of let's say 70% versus 90 or 92, 94. That's a yeah. huge difference. So, yeah. And again, uh, we tend to have, uh, as you probably know, Gary Spedding as well. You have over in America, a fabulous guy in a wonderful laboratory as well. Uh, and we tend to want to communicate to our peers with, Again, because most of the small distillers, uh, and uh, as well the bigger ones, obviously, but smaller ones, uh, they tend, we tend to work uh, six, at least six days a week uh, and long hours and whatever. And again, if you could actually gain 10% of your yield, uh, if nothing else, uh, don't mind the money, the cost, uh, all that, but 10% of your work. If you could cut back on that and still do the same, right? Uh, so uh, it, it's worth doing your analysis. That sounds like it to me. I'm looking at it from the outside, but it sounds like it to me that it's worth it. So we've gone through the, so the distillation from everything from the grains to the mashing, the milling, reverse those two, uh, to the distillation. After distillation, of course, comes for barreled spirits. The barreling, and you've got a two things that I want to talk about on this. First is your unique makeup of barrels that you use, and this this may be more particular to the whiskey than any other product. But so I want to talk about that first, and then also uh, the how you. Well, you know, let's start with that. Let's just start. With, <laughs> I have a bad habit of doing two part questions and forgetting the second part. So, <laughs> um, so the first part, yeah. So the make of your barrels, if I heard correctly, it was sixty percent American chinkapin virgin oak, um, a certain percentage of uh, Quercus rober from Burgundy. I don't think I heard what the third one was. So, what does that make up? Uh, Chinkapin oak or the American oak, uh, again, obviously a lot of what we do again uh, and what we did early on was analyzing different type of woods. Uh, and I tend to say a bit valiantly, there are about 300 different types of oak. Uh, then there are subspecies from that as well. Uh, but there are many different type of oaks. All of them create a different character, obviously. Just as you look into grapes, uh, a Merlot doesn't taste the same as a Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and that's the same with the woods. Uh, again, terroir, as with wines, it depends on where it grows. So we actually can see very clearly with different oak, same type of oak, same variety of oak, uh, grown on, on on different parts of Kentucky or Missouri or wherever you take it from, uh, it will have a different character. Uh, it does matter uh, if you toast it, char it, how you toast charge it, and what's been in it uh, prior, obviously. Um, but I do have a liking to uh, the Quercus Alba, and particularly to the Chinkapin Oak. I think the Chinkapin Oak is king of kings, or <laughs> queen of queens, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's an amazing way you get these hazelnut character. It's... Uh, uh, almonds, uh, you get uh, a floral, uh, floral character, you got much more uh, a rounder note with, especially when you do a high char or uh, an alligator skin on them, you get 
uh, a lot of caramelized sugars in there. Uh, so the chinka pin, but we do have some uh, burrock swamp oak also obviously being white oaks, but again, uh, looking at the bur burrow, we we get more of a mushroomy character. Uh, the the swamp oak tend to get more of an earthy, uh, uh, like a muddy character. It's kind of like uh, going swamp hunting in, in Louisiana. Uh, mm -hmm. So it all gets different character, different uh, nuances. In uh, again, uh, we only use uh, air dried wood. Uh, I'm allergic to the the oven dried ones. Uh, it's kind of like, I, I think it's like making your dinner in a microwave oven or something. Uh, but uh, that's our, our Quercus Alba, or the Quercus Muhlenbergi is the type of Alba of the Chinkapin. Uh, looking at the European oak, uh, we use three different varieties of European oak. Uh, you did mention um, uh, the Quercus Rober, which is uh, Latin for, for forest oak. Uh, we tend to harvest that in, in France, uh, around Burgundy, Bouchard. And again, that gives us a similar character to uh, the Baroque with some mushrooms and uh, a little bit of floral almost. Yeah, we get some of that phenylethyl alcohol, uh, the uh, bit, uh, uh, elderflower character from that. Uh, we do have Quaker's Petrea, that's mountain oak, and we all get that from France as well, uh, around Moulins in Allier. Uh, so that gives us more licorice. It gives us uh, uh, more of a pepperiness, uh, more deeper, uh, kind of like, uh, now in, we're, we're going into Halloween here. So it's kind of like those uh, Dracula sucking where you get the, all the uh, dark flavors from that, right? Um, then we have Quercus rosacea, which is kind of like a mix of American or the, the white oak and uh, Quercus rober. Uh, and we tend to harvest that or do harvest that in Iberia or Spain or Portugal. Most of it comes from Spain. Uh, and that gives us almost like a tomato soup character with uh, some herbal characters, uh, uh, a lot of uh, again floral notes, but more on the uh, the the a bit wine character, I guess uh, uh, almost like um, uh, spring onion character without the sulfur, uh, but the uh, nice notes. Then we do have some uh, uh, some of uh, the the Asians oaks like the Mitsunara and the Mongolica, uh, and they give uh, a wonderful menthol character, uh, uh, kind of an aniseed note, but uh, I tend to say <laughs> one one barrel amongst 20 to 40 barrels, that's what you can take because it's so potent. Um, you can do it as, there are single varieties that are amazing, but I tend to want just to bring in a, a tad of that. But those are our main varieties, but we do, Every year we try new uh, varieties of oak. Uh, and again, we do test from different soils, different microclimates. Uh, and again, uh, depending on what's been on them before and uh, what we've given to the cask prior to uh, filling it with our spirits. And do you, I mean, you have all these wood sources that you, you get from, which are incredible. And 
do you then raise your own barrels? No, we, we have the capacity of, of mending them and we do, we played around with, uh, but to be honest, that's not our expertise. So I, I tend to, to uh, buy them uh, ready. So, and what I learned or what we decided to do is that we always build uh, the barrels where the wood has grown. Uh, because again, they have a pride of, of handling their wood in that area. And also they know how, how to treat that wood. Uh, and most of our uh, American oak comes from uh, Cuba, Missouri, uh, from uh, McGinnis. McGinnis is, uh, if not the best, one of the best barrel manufacturers in the world. Uh, and what they really know uh, in their fingertips is their uh, Quercus Mullenbergia, the Chincapin oak. They know their varieties around Kentucky, Missouri, Illinois, uh, and bringing them together and get the best out of them. If we would send that wood as staves to to us in Sweden or, or in Europe, uh, we would probably not do uh, as good barrels as they do. Uh, but again, if we would send our, our French oak to them, uh, they would probably not do uh, as good barrel as uh, the, the guys and girls do in, in Allier. So uh, again, it's knowing your raw materials uh, and handling the, the right way. I like that too. There's the, you allow for the element of not just, not just the, the basic terroir that we think of, but also uh, what I've been describing is a sense of place of so the, you know, that the people using that wood on a daily basis, as you said, they know it better than anybody. So they're, yeah. they're going to make it a better barrel, better staves, all of that than anyone else could. And yeah. it's, it's worth doing i'm sure it's also somewhat more expensive because you're getting all these but to the point that we've made a couple of times sometimes the cost is worth it to make the better product um overall yeah and, and to be fair uh you always have one or two costs or you have some costs over your production area uh some leak some doesn't create the character you want but again if you actually buy good barrels good casks uh, you tend to have a much better character. You don't have leaking cask maybe, and uh, and you don't have as much waste from the barrels. So again, a good investment, sound investment, you know what's put in there, it will make a good whiskey. Maybe not exactly the character you, you were seeking for, but it will make a good whiskey. Uh, whilst if you buy the cheapest stuff around, it might leak uh, and you might sit after 10 years and say, okay, I can't sell this whiskey. Uh, and then it's an expensive barrel. So For sure. Yeah. Have you had any so far that are just, you, know, you get to that age and it's just, it's just not drinkable, not sellable? Now, we, we're still so young. We, we're, our, we're just into our 15th year. So uh, we've had barrels that uh, when taking samples from and say, okay, this is over-oaked. Uh, where we had virgin oak and put uh, somewhat too light spirit into there. Uh, and we found that, okay, this was a bit too much. But then we either blended it out with something else or uh, we said, okay, let, let, let's move it to a lighter cost and let it sit and we'll see what happens in five years. Maybe it get better. Uh, maybe we'll just use it as burner fuels or I don't know. Uh, but uh 
there there are spells again uh, you might have a stave that's gone wrong or something happened uh, and again most often it's uh, it's not the barrel manufacturer's fault because again you might have had somebody in that forest driving a nail into that uh, stave or whatever uh, and peeing on that uh, oak back in the 60s or whatever so uh, normally we don't have as much problem with american oak to be honest uh, and that's one of the reasons we do use more American oak, apart from it actually gives a, a wonderful character, but also, uh, again, a bit rallying to the, you probably know this, but if looking into the, the growth cell of, uh, of, a, of an oak or whatever plant, uh, if you'd look at the, the, the cell uh, with Quercus alba, uh, looking at it as a legal brick, it's actually tight on all sides. So that's why if you take an American oak, uh, or a Quercus alba, you could just make your, your staves and you could nail them together and it will be tight. Whilst if you look into the Quercus roba, Quercus petraea, for example, the, the European oak, uh, they're just uh, sealed on the top and the lower parts of, of the legal break, not on the sides. So that's why you need to uh, split them uh, along the earrings. Otherwise they will leak. And that's why you have much more leaking barrels and whatever. Uh, but again, uh, a lot of the forests we use in, in particularly in France, uh, they unfortunately were invaded uh, some some eighty years ago, uh, and uh, there was a lot of stuff happening in these woods back then. Uh, there were gasoline coming in uh, from whatever military forces were in there. There were other stuff going into those. Uh, so sometimes we could actually find those. Uh, characters in those woods. Sometimes it's exciting, uh, but most often we don't like kerosene in our whiskey. So, um, uh, but uh, all everything uh, affects your your final character, right? So, absolutely. So, just um, uh, we are coming up on time. But just just in the last ten minutes or so that we have, uh, I do have a couple more questions that are specific to the you know the process and and what you get to. So. I did want to mention, I don't know if we'll have time to talk more about the, the products that we've mentioned so far, but there, before this episode goes live, there will be full write-ups for each of them. So we'll get as much information as possible in there, and there'll be links in the show notes to those. So um, if you want to know more, if you want to be able to find these products and try them, that you will be able to. So we will be sure to to have that information out for you. Uh, frankly, there's just so much interesting information to, to ask, <laughs> you know, uh, we we can run out of time fairly easily. We so do a the, new one next week, right? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Well, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm away next week or the week after, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, the, so the next uh, one I wanted to ask was about the bottle design. Because, yep. As we mentioned earlier, it's it's uh, an homage to the Erlenmeyer flask. Um, not even really homage. It is an Erlenmeyer flask. <laughs> uh, and, but... I think it, it. Yeah, I exactly. And exactly, it's it's very recognizable, and yep. uh, I know it serves a purpose because it it's uh, a callback to your history in chemistry. Um, it also does do something on the marketing side because it stands out. You know, if yep. a bottle is shaped like that, it's from Spirit of Then. Uh, and I wanted to ask you from the chemistry side of it that this bottle design in the flask goes beyond just being a tool that's frequently used in chemistry, that there is actually a link between Erlenmeyer and uh, not necessarily the spirits industry, but the research that he did. 
um, on it. And I wanted to throw that to you to just talk yep. a little bit about nice. that. Yeah, obviously, when we started out, one part is obviously marketing and, and you want to stick out on the shelf. And uh, we were quite early on. Most of our colleagues had the generic uh, bottles and we said, OK, let's stick out, uh, which is sometimes an advantage, sometimes not so much. Uh, but obviously, with, with this this bottle, uh, it was the chemistry, as you said, and Emil Erlenmeyer was uh, a German scientist and one of the first that uh, proved uh, and discussed and, and made formulas for how we actually create esters and aldehyde. So much of what we measure uh, in laboratory uh, and what we talk about and what we perceive when we know a whiskey or a gin or whatever, it's esters and aldehydes and acids and alcohols. More or less, that's the, the components. There could be other stuff as well, but that's a big chunk of it. And what uh, Emil Erlenmeyer talked about was uh, chemistry 101 was if you have an acid and you have an alcohol and you mix them together, you start creating esters and aldehyde. And then you create a balance back and forth to, to creating all these flavor components. So it, obviously, as you said, it was an homage. Uh, then again, uh, I, I am, uh, 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 I like all these different symbols. So uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for that. So obviously it's also with the bottle design, uh, Obviously, he did. Uh, there was a lot of uh, yeast uh, were produced in this once as well. Obviously, with Pasteur. Uh, so, uh, but it's also the oldest symbol for man. If you have an upgoing triangle, it, it downgoing oldest symbol for 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 woman. Uh, and and again, you have the all-seeing eye. You have a lot of symbols. If you start looking at these balls, you find quite a lot of fun symbols. Which again <laughs> might be fun, but. Uh, it does stick out, uh, and I want to communicate the the chemistry side of it, but also the the history and and what we we try to do because we're also on an island where uh, I tend to say where gravity was invented. It wasn't invented because it was probably before there, but uh, we had a scientist, an astronomer, back in the fifteenth century, to Cabra that uh, actually. Uh, uh, did all these measurements that then proved that uh, the earth is actually not flat. I know there are people that still hesitate around that, but it, it's supposed to be spherical-ish. Uh, mm -hmm. So all the, those measurements were done on the island. And from those calculations, again, going over to uh, the guy with the apple in, in UK uh, and actually giving the, the loss of gravity. So there was so much science being made uh, on the island from the 15th century until today. So all of that's an homage to, to what we do. So, And it, for me, uh, I'm, I'm partial to brands that lean into their stories. And of course there, that goes into the sense of place. And yeah. we said earlier, this is an island that it, it's very small in geography. It's small in population. And yet there is this famous astronomer and scientist. You've got now spirit of Ven there doing so many different projects, both for yourself and for others, that it's worth uh, exploring that. And and I think the leaning in is, is the right move. It, it For me, it just makes it a better experience as a whiskey drinker and as a spirits enjoyer mm -hmm. to know that there's that kind of level of thought behind it, which I know will sound way too laudatory to be an objective um, thing, but <laughs> it's, it's honestly true. I mean, experience when I'm rating something, experience is part of it. You know, if I get it, yeah. for example, 
um, I know this is an audio only uh, that'll go out, but if I'm trying something that comes from even even the minis, even the sample bottles yep. that I have are exactly what you would get in a full size. Yep. And for me, that makes a big difference because it's like, okay, someone put thought and effort and time and money into this. So, uh, you know, I, even if I don't like the product itself, it didn't happen in this case, but even if I didn't like the product, I'd say, okay, they're still, they're putting effort into this. Mm-hmm. And for me, that makes a big difference. So I, that's why I, I, I mentioned it. Um, yeah. So uh, just to um, close out now. So I've got, man, I got three minutes and three questions to ask. Um, let's see. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the, something we we can definitely talk about uh more another time is also the consulting business which we talked about a bit in in the stills um but i think what i'd love to end on is you know we've got 18 distilleries now in sweden uh, a growing global presence for spirit of a venue in 40 countries um you no longer have the same monopoly in sweden it's still difficult to sell Mm -hmm. there i understand but no but you can have a burgeoning whiskey and spirits creating scene there so for your own distillery what do you want the legacy of spirit event to be i i think to if we can uh have the customers exploring that there are so much more to see and if we could get our our colleagues to to think outside the box, not necessarily so far outside the box that they forgot where the box was or losing it in baggage claim in Dubai or whatever, but actually doing something new uh, and reinventing yourself and and every category uh, because there are so much. And sometimes it could be reinventing and going back to the roots. Uh, Some of the recipes we do, we actually go back and get in, uh, like Tukabrai, he had an amazing garden on the island and going back to some of the botanical material or the, the, the herbs and uh, he grew uh, and the fruits and see how would, have, would that have tasted way back then. Some of that was awful, but it, it could still inspire us to, to do something new. And if we could inspire uh, customers to, to try something new, uh, and going a bit outside, uh, but also obviously our colleagues. Uh, and again, uh, thinking uh, local and, and regional, uh, acting global, but having a present theme, doing the sustainable thought again, because that's part of being local as well, uh, even if we sell globally. Uh, but uh, the more we can do locally, uh, wherever it is, I think that's a legacy I, I would like to have been part of the journey with so many other amazing colleagues around the world, obviously. Wonderful. Well, Henrik, I'm sure we'll have you on again to talk more. As I said, there are questions unanswered, but <laughs> time time waits for no man, unfortunately. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on, for talking about Spirit Event, talking about your own history, the immense lengths that you guys go to to experiment, to keep experimenting and not being satisfied or bored, if your wife would say. Um, so with that, um, hang on for me just a minute after we finish recording. Uh, it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. There will be, as I said, uh, notes in the show notes for reviews, um, articles, the uh, research list that I used to come up with questions for this interview will be available in the show notes again. And thank you all for listening. And I'll see you all next week. Thank you.
Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whisker Ring podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.